0: So you have this eight-year-old who is with his grandmother.
1: When they weren't in shelter, they were sleeping in a laundromat or finding a bench in Union Station. The law says families get shelter in a private room. You've not given them a private room.
2: Over the years, the city of Washington, D.C. had taken steps aimed at protecting the homeless. One example is the guarantee that homeless families in the city have a safe place to stay in the dead of winter. When that promise wasn't being kept, Hogan Lovells took action. My name is Kate Stetson. I'm a global board member and the co-director of our appellate practice at Hogan Lovells. Since the creation of the firm's pro bono department in 1970, Hogan Lovells has played an important role in the effort to promote affordable housing and protect our most vulnerable populations. Hogan Lovell's lawyers Lance Morishige and Allison Holt are here to tell us about their pro bono advocacy on behalf of D.C.'s homeless population. Lance, I'll start with you. What challenges were your homeless clients facing?
1: Hi, Kate. Thanks. Um, It is helpful to just give a bit of background on the law uh, before we jump into the challenges. Um, So D.C. is one of a few jurisdictions that has a right to shelter. Um, There are certain conditions or requirements that you have to meet to get shelter, and that that includes you have to be homeless, you have to be a district resident, and importantly for this case, that right only applies to overnight shelter if the temperature overnight is going to be below freezing. Uh, One other point that's really relevant to this case that Allison and I did is that the law said that when families are put in shelter, they had to be sheltered in a private room. So we had actually started already looking into these practices around shelter in about 2013, since it looked like DC was being really stringent on how it let people into shelter. So we were we were on the case when all of a sudden in around January or February of 2014, we found out that DC had started putting Uh, families into gymnasiums and rec centers rather than private rooms. Um, So rather than, you know, a bed and, you know, walls and a door, they were on cots on a gym floor. Eventually DC got some, you know, fabric partitions, but that didn't even uh, afford anybody real privacy. Um, And additionally, another challenge (laughs) Uh, D.C. traditionally had given families 24-hour shelter. Once you were in, you got to stay in until D.C. helped you find a new place. But when they transitioned to these rec center placements, families were allowed in for the evening and kicked out in the morning and then had to reapply the next day. So they spent their evening uh, getting to the shelter, sleeping for a few hours, then they had to get up, they got kicked out, and then they had to get back in line to get back into the shelter every day.
2: How long would a family have to wait in line?
1: So Allison and I actually stood outside at the application center where families told us that they had been waiting all day. And uh, this the, the line would shut down at about 4 p.m. And we were still meeting people who had not been heard, who had not gotten to apply at 8 p.m., 9 p.m. Oh. So these families were spending all day, just sitting inside of a, uh, inside of like a, a, the equivalent of a DMV, waiting to be heard, to say, I'm still homeless, just like I was yesterday. Please let me into shelter.
0: I think the easiest way to understand the challenges that our clients are faced as a part of this change in policy that was contrary to the law is to think, see it through the lens of one particular family. So for instance, in our case, the name plaintiff was a grandmother and her grandson who was, Lynch, you may want to correct me, but I want to say he was like eight years old. Um, and though they were our family that we represented. And so when you think about it, from their life on a daily basis, she would sit in the the, Government building all day, waiting for them to apply to shelter. At some period of the night, let's say six, seven, eight o'clock, if she was lucky, they would be placed on a bus and taken to this gymnasium recreation center where they would be given these cots in that gymnasium recreation center they were placed with homeless men and homeless women and other families and before this homeless families had never been placed with the single homeless population so you have this 8 year old who is with his grandmother who already is you know experiencing the traumatic impact in, um impacts of homelessness, who now is in a recreation center, which means he is using the restroom, which is like a large school bathroom, not with any of his family, but with random men, because um, he's not going with his grandmother into the female um restrooms. And this is his only chance to like bathe and clean himself and get ready to go to school the next day. And so then you get up the next morning and then he has to go to school and he has to be, um, they do you know, she at one point they were taking two different bus lines to get him to school from where the recreation center was. And then she would have to get on buses back to the government building in order to apply it again. And then they would do that all over and all over and all over day after day. And you're talking like a second grader. So it it was just there was reasons that the law had been drafted to give families some stability, namely because of the impacts that homelessness already has on children. And this upended even the tiny modicum of stability that the system was supposed to give these families.
2: I'm glad that you told it through that through that perspective of of your plaintiff the the grandmother and her grandson because I think it it prompts a question that I was thinking about when you think about the the psychological impact of the system that was put in place. And you've you've alluded to this, you know, in a a couple respects, but the the constant shuffling through of the system, shuttling through the government building. When you were putting together this case against the district, were there elements of that kind of psychological impact that you were looking at as well? Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, I'm happy to take that one. Um, It was a key piece. So The first piece of this case really was we sought a preliminary injunction, which is essentially a way for you to go to court and say, Your Honor, what is happening right now is so bad that we can't go through the normal timing of this case, and we are so likely to win anyway. We need you to stop what the other side is doing at this moment, and so when we went in on our preliminary injunction, one of the key components of our case was actually some expert testimony from a child psychologist here in the District of Columbia who was trained to work with children specifically and had a long um, history of experience working with homeless children um, even before she came to our case. And she was able to really tie together, we put on a lot of fact witnesses, a lot of um, homeless people themselves that were able to testify to how it was impacting them on a personal level. And she was able to tie those stories together to explain to the court what those individual moments with those individual stories meant and the long-term effects of trauma on this population and specifically on children. So what does you know, even short periods of physical uh, lack of safety mean or the inability to properly clean yourself or the inability to sleep because you're surrounded by people that you don't know. We walked through each of the practical impacts of what this placement was doing to children, and she was able to tie it together and what it would mean for them emotionally long term. And the, the court really relied on that piece of evidence in finding that the practice must be stopped immediately. And also when the district appealed the decision, that was also the first thing they tried to, to hit us on is you shouldn't have listened to this expert. And I think there was a good reason for that. And that's because of how powerful mm-hmm. her testimony was in explaining to the court really what this practice could do in the long term.
2: Yeah, the, the layers of impact, the immediate practical impact, day-to-day, and then the the long-term, long-lasting psychological impact. With those, with those pieces of the narrative in place, what was the theory? Uh, what was the legal claim that you brought against the district?
1: Our legal theory was actually very simple. It was the law says families get shelter in a private room. You've not given them a private room. Um, and every judge that we ever brought this, this claim before said, wow, that's incredibly simple. Law here says private room. These cots, these fabric partitions, those sure don't look like a private room. Uh, And we won a TRO uh, temporary restraining order. We won the preliminary injunction that Allison just mentioned. And we won on appeal before the DC Court of Appeals. So the district came back with a couple arguments on that. So, first, the first thing, their first uh, attempt was to just throw up their hands and say, actually, uh, private fabric partitions are private rooms, right? Like, look, there, there's some privacy here. And who, knows, who even knows what a room is? Um, and to reinforce that, they came and made an emergency rule that said basically just that, that uh, any separation in any room was therefore a private room. So they
2: actually put a put a rule in place in DC that described a, a fabric partition as a private room.
1: Exactly, the Department of uh, Human Services put together this emergency rulemaking as soon, basically as soon as we sued them over this and said, oh no, no, no. Uh, we've determined in our infinite wisdom that a, a fabric partition uh, makes something private. And we said, first, you don't get to come up with a rule in response to us suing you, that makes what you're doing okay. Like that just doesn't count. And then more importantly, even if you could make that rule, it plainly isn't a private room under the statute. The law says private room. And if you ask anybody, a private room is four walls, a ceiling, a door, maybe a window, preferably a lock for privacy. And so Allison and I literally sat down and had to draft what we thought made a, made a room, specifically a room, listing all those elements. And from the very first TRO, the, that temporary restraining order, that definition carried through, eventually to a amendment to the law that the city council passed saying, mayor's office, never do this again. A private room is four walls, a ceiling, window, door with locks, et cetera. So that was their first attempt to be creative with private room. Then they tried a much more creative and frankly sophisticated argument, which was that the way that this law was structured, our plaintiffs didn't have standing to sue. That the only entity that could tell the district um, that they were violating the law and enforce it was the city council themselves. And this had to do with, Uh, one provision of the law that said that there was no entitlement to shelter created except for severe weather shelter. And that gets back to what I was talking about in the beginning, which is this right to overnight shelter only applied when the temperature got below freezing. And so what the district tried to say was the only thing that you have a right to is shelter overnight. This other section of the law that says if you're a family, you're getting shelter. That has to be private room. That isn't part of what you can sue over. You only get shelter. That shelter can be anything that we determine. And the only entity that can tell us that we're doing the private room side wrong is the DC City Council themselves.
2: I see because because the only right to shelter attached when the when the temperature went below freezing and that didn't carry according to the district that didn't carry the government the the private room uh, qualifier with it.
1: Right. Um, So Allison got up before the D.C. Court of Appeals and said, no, Your Honor, here's five different reasons why uh, that interpretation of this statute doesn't make any sense. Probably was only up there for about 10 minutes, sat down, and the panel on the D.C. Court of Appeals spent about the next 45 to 50 minutes reading the Riot Act to uh, counsel for the district for their both for their interpretation of the law, uh, their attempts to get around what a private room meant, and ultimately for the district's mismanagement of its homeless services.
2: Allison, tell us tell us a little bit about that argument. Uh, Lance Lance has just described it as reading I a mean, riot it act it to is, the district.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's a great feeling. She actually, uh, who very capable, very smart, very good attorney um, from the SG's office, Lance, I believe. Um, Lauren Ellicott. Yeah, she was great. Super smart, super good attorney. Had a very difficult argument to handle on appeal that had been made for her on the record below. And she actually went first because they were appealing the district court to, or the trial court order. And it was very clear within like five minutes of her standing up that she was going to have a hard row of it. And it was for for people who know me, it is never my instinct to talk less, to use a Hamilton quote, I <laughs> always want to say more. Um, and so it took a lot of discipline to stand up and say as little as possible and sit right back down because the only thing I was going to do was hurt our case. So I tried very hard to uh, keep my mouth shut. Um a la Aaron Burr, sir. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Talk less, smile more. So, when when the decision came out, um, what what were the what were the primary components of the ruling?
0: Yeah, most of it, and Lance, I'll let you take some of this too. Most of it really was just putting the. The trial court's order in place in a more permanent way. I mean, our big win really was in the preliminary injunction hearing because after that the district was required to keep the the right practices, the practices that were codified in the law in place even as they were seeking to appeal that decision. And so in some ways we were surprised they had appealed because they figured out a way, despite arguing Um, at the trial court level that it was impossible for them to comply with the law, they found a way to easily comply with the law. And so it really just gave our clients the security they needed to be able to know they were going to have the type of shelter they needed. The one other interesting thing here, which I don't think we've mentioned yet, is I don't know if you remember, but the winter of 2014 was the first winter of the polar vortex. Um, I don't think that was a word that any of us had been using, or at least (laughs) I hadn't been using before 2014. And so that backdrop of so many freezing nights and the entire you know, Midwest and Northeast quarter being just gripped in these Arctic days um, was really the backdrop for this whole case, which kind of gave it um, an urgency and just an atmosphere that it might not have had in any other year. And it definitely impacted the way that our clients were thinking about it. it Impacted the way that our co-counsel, the Washington Legal for the Clinic for the Homeless, which is an amazing homeless services organization here in town, it has been doing amazing work um, for homeless uh, individuals and families for 40 years. Um, thought about this case, and it affected the way that we approached this case.
2: Mm-hmm. And in those years, I mean, this was the winter of 2014, 2013, 2014. In the years since, has the district maintained the practices that it put in place after your? after your victory?
0: It has. Um, We continue to work very closely with the legal clinic for the homeless because It was such a resounding win. The district hasn't attempted to come back in this way to limit the right to shelter to freezing rooms instead, or right to shelter on freezing nights instead. They've attempted to chip away at it and to their obligations um, with regards to it in other ways by, like, very strictly limiting um, in a way that can prove very problematic for homeless people who can get into shelter. Like, how much documentation you have to have to show that you are homeless let that sit with you for a second, like documentation mm-hmm. to show that you're not giving out ID cards that say, hey, no address. Um, so it is that is where we have seen the district try to move its responsibilities. And we continue to work really closely with the, the legal clinic to try to help homeless individuals and homeless families um, in the face of that.
1: Yeah, I think I'd follow up with, you know, we, we soundly won the legal arguments in this case. Um, The district has, and I think to this day, maintains kind of like a policy argument or a policy belief about what is motivating or what is the driving force behind families ending up in shelter. And that was basically that they were convinced that the 24-hour shelter system that they had was just too nice. And as a result, in particular, young mothers uh, who were living with their parents were instead choosing to go live in shelter instead. And that that belief persists to this day, and that drives a lot of the DHS uh, policymaking and pushes to amend the law. Now, I think from our perspective, first, we don't think it, that it, their assessment is true. For example, in our case, our clients included the grandmother that Allison just described, and the grandmother and her grandson, their alternative wasn't living with other family members. When they weren't in shelter, they were living, sleeping in a laundromat or finding a bench in Union Station. Hmm. Um, Another one of our clients was a couple and their two kids who were newly experiencing homelessness. And we had another family that had been sneaking into stairwells of apartment buildings to sleep for the evening. These weren't folks who if they could just resolve something with uh, with their mom, could go you know sleep in their childhood bedroom, and you know I think second even if it was true, it ignores other important truths about this homeless situation in D.C. So we were find when we did find a couple mothers in their twenties who were leaving situations with their parents living situations, it was usually because when they were living living together, that was putting the whole family at risk. Um, one of these people wasn't, our, wasn't one of our clients, so I'll just use a pseudonym, but Sarah. Let's think of Sarah. Sarah's mother had a housing voucher that said that only, only Sarah's mother could live in this apartment, and that was strictly enforced. So when Sarah went to D.C. and said, I'm homeless, I can't live with my mother, an entirely other arm of D.C. said, well, you can live with your mother safely, You know, regardless of this voucher. (laughs) Just can't live legally. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Ignorant of the legal part, they said, you could be there tonight safely. And that puts the entire family at risk of homelessness. And so, like, even if maybe, like, Sarah could have physically lived with her mother for another night, that's not a long-term solution to homelessness. And that's not what the district should probably be (laughs) trying to get around. Yeah.
2: And even if, I mean, even if beyond the Sarah... Uh, anecdote: There are people who, on the margins, are somehow gaming the system by living in a homeless shelter rather than with their families. The you know adopting that as the driving policy just seems to be such a wrongheaded way to go about thinking about regulations um, on the homeless.
1: Right. So, so as as we discussed, the um, the district is not unique, but one of a limited number of jurisdictions that has a right to shelter. And there are some in the district government that think that that makes it a magnet for homelessness. And so uh, as Allison was describing, they have tried to put in as many documentary uh, requirements to demonstrate that you are really from the district and not from elsewhere, just trying to take advantage of DC's um, shelter policy. In order to limit the the shelter population and we continue to you know look at that every time that the law there are proposed amendments to the law to see if those amendments are legal constitutional right there's a there's other potential violations there that we we continue to look at
0: it's a really interesting you know discussion because I think all of us sitting around, it's the the elephant in the room is, of course, it's not an attractive option to be in a homeless shelter. Like no one wants that. No one wants that for their family. No one wants that for their children. And one of truly the saddest parts of our case was the day before. Our preliminary injunction hearing was the day that Relisha Rudd went missing from D.C. General Homeless Shelter. Mm-hmm. And she was a part of um, the Homeless, uh, the Playtime Project, which is uh, an, uh, also in another amazing organization in D.C. of Uh, folks listening to this are interested in helping out with homelessness. I'm just going to, again, those two organizations are the Washington Legal Clinic for the Homeless and the Homeless Children's Playtime Project, both amazing organizations. Anyway, our expert worked for the Playtime Project and had a very close relationship with Relisha, who was a part of that program at at dc general and so against the backdrop of the government saying oh these people just want to be in shelter Mm -hmm. you have a homeless child here in the district who was kidnapped from homeless shelter and it just created such like a just a really put such a fine point on the dangers that our clients were facing day in and day out and it really um, underscored how critical safety for children in these circumstances are.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. One question occurred to me earlier that I neglected to ask, which is when we're when we're talking about families on cots in a gymnasium in a rec center, how many how many families are we talking about? We're not just talking about three or four. How many are in that on that gymnasium floor in any one night?
1: You know. We struggled to get really good numbers on this. Um, so Allison and I showed up uh, to one of the sites, brought a camera and uh, got to tour one small room of a, of one of the rec centers and people were stacked on top of each other. Um, you know, we, we don't know the the exact number of people that were impacted, but when we walked inside, it was uh, caught, caught, no space in between, fabric partition, mm-hmm. then cot, cot, fabric partition. Um, so people were really crammed in there.
2: Yeah. Thank you so
0: much, Lance.
1: Uh, yeah, this was great.
2: Thank you, Allison.
0: Thanks so much for inviting us to do this. We really appreciate yeah. it.
1: Thank you.
2: Mary Casson is a resident of Garden City, New York on Long Island and is in her seventies. In 2016, Mary told the New York Times, I come from South Carolina, so I understand discrimination. I came out here, and I feel like I went back to the South all over again. You may not think to equate the American South of the 1950s and 60s with New York City suburbs of today, but as housing discrimination continues, those comparisons are very real. Today I'm joined by Stan Brown and Hava Brandris two of the pro bono lawyers who have played a central role in the 13-year zoning standoff in Garden City. So Hava, why don't I start with you? Tell us a little bit about what was happening.
3: I think actually to answer that question, I should take us all the way back to 2004-2005, since that's how long this case has been knocking around. And in 2004, Garden City unfortunately was not all that much different from how it is today. It's a it's an extremely uh, white and affluent suburb in Nassau County of Long Island, which is you know still today, but has been for a long time um, one of the most segregated. Suburbs in the country and Garden City sort of provided a stark example of that. It is uh, an extremely white, wealthy community and surrounded um, nearly entirely by communities that are made up majority minority, black and brown people, lower income. So it, it it really if 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 you even look at it on like a census map, you know you kind of see the the really stark contrast between Garden City and its neighbors, segregation wise. Yeah,
4: Garden City. I grew up across the tracks from Garden City, actually. And when I graduated high school, which is many decades ago, Garden City was known as a, a community that was not open to minorities of any kind, religious as well. And when I came back, as, as you know, Kate, I was in D.C. for 40 years. And when I came back um, and was asked to work on this case, I remembered very well. And what shocked me was there were really had been no change. Garden City was still extremely segregated. And the attitudes, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, the attitudes were one of, we don't want those kind of people in our neighborhood.
3: The one thing I was going to add is, is one thing that our clients were doing was housing testing. You know, they'd, they'd send testers in as, you know, the same way that government testing is often done to different realtors uh and the you know they'd send in you know a, a, a someone who was black who was looking for housing someone who was white who was looking for housing and they put out a study and the the results were really you know un- unfortunately as you might expect for that area was that people of uh, who were of color and lower income were from Garden City and into um, communities surrounding it that were already majority minority and white people with you know similar incomes, similar sort of requirements for what they were looking for in a place to live were steered into Garden City, and so you know what what happened. In our case, was kind of an example of that. And uh, unfortunately, you know, that is still going on today. Newsday, which is the the paper that um, the local paper in Long Island recently did a, a three year long expose also sending testers in on housing. Um, and that kind of steering was still was still going mm-hmm. on.
2: So there's there's systemic kind of persistent and pernicious segregation that, that happens over a period of years and decades. There's the kind of individualized steering that you're talking about. But one of the things, um, if I remember correctly, about Garden City is that there was also a very abrupt uh, change in the treatment of a zoning issue. Can you talk about the zoning change and what was around that? That
4: is, in essence, what this case was all about. So the way the case started was uh, Nassau County was going to be selling a a big chunk of property, and it was right in the middle of Garden City, and uh, Nassau County needed money at the time, so they decided they were going to sell this property. But the way zoning works on Long Island is you have to get approval from the the towns or the village where the property is located. So they had to go to Garden City to have a zoning change because it was zoning... For government, it was called the the uh, the the P zone, the government zone. So what happened is they go to Garden City and they they say we need to have a zoning change. We want to have residential uh, zoning, and so Garden City hired a consultant, went through a whole process that took about a year to come up with a new zone. And that un- the way that zone would work, it would be possible to build residential multifamily housing in the zone. And this was a a, a, um, a zone that was recommended by a, a committee of the Garden Garden City Village government that a consultant recommended. And they were ready to go forward. But then word got out that if it was zoned that way, it would be possible to have affordable housing in the community. And all of a sudden, the community was up in arms. We don't want that. We don't want uh, these kind of people there. And so what happened is, despite their consultants' recommendation, they did an abrupt turnaround. And the bottom line is, under this zoning, the new zoning they put in place, it would not be possible to build multifamily housing and not be possible to build affordable housing. And they had a lot of excuses for that. The zone that had been recommended, it was going to create too many school children. Their traffic would be bad. All things, by the way, that their own consultant said wouldn't happen. And that's what this case is all about. That changing the zoning to make sure that it would not be possible to have affordable housing occupied by minorities living in Garden City. That's what led to this litigation
2: so how did Hogan Lovells come to get involved in this, in this case?
4: The Lawyers' Committee for Civil Rights reached out to law firms uh, in New York to handle this case. Most of the, the big firms wouldn't do it. We agreed to take the case. One of our partners who lived in uh, Garden City agreed to lead the case and led it for a few years, but then left. And uh, that's where I took over litigating the case.
2: So when the when the case began and as the case was litigated and I understand it was litigated over a long period of time what were the what were the main arguments and the key facts I think you've already identified a few of them but talk about the the arguments and and what the challenge was
4: I think the biggest challenge was that we tried our case doing something that lawyers are typically told not to do don't make your case through the other side's witnesses. We put out our case almost entirely through the examination of Garden City's witnesses and experts. And obviously that was a challenge, but but I the essence of what we showed was the inconsistency with what they were gonna what they were planning to do and what they ended up doing when word got out in the neighborhood that affordable housing may come there.
3: In terms of how we legally describe discrimination when you're trying to prove that discrimination occurred, you can go about it in in one of two ways to show that housing discrimination occurred. You can show that someone, you know, someone or or some town or a government did something intentionally, they on purpose did took some action or enacted some policy that was motivated by an intent to exclude someone? So we call that, you know, disparate treatment or you know, intentional discrimination. And that's harder to prove, right? Because in this day and age, you know, we don't have people saying things outright like, we are enacting this zoning because we don't want black people to live in our town. And there's also something called disparate impact discrimination, where if you if you you can prove that a policy or a law has an effect that uh, more heavily harms people who are considered in a minority group or a protected class like black or brown people and it that that law harms them more than it harms white people so the the difficulty in in putting together a case of intentional discrimination that someone did something in on purpose when people are not using that language outright is 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 really the angle we had to work at here is how how can you show a court when you don't have that smoking gun of somebody saying something that sounds outright discriminatory um, how do you put together a case to show the judge this was done on purpose this was done with a discriminatory intent and so we had to put together a story that would really show to the judge in our case that this zoning decision was an anomaly after a careful planning process that suggested that multifamily housing would be a good idea in this spot all of a sudden they changed course and that was change- the course change was in response to sort of fierce opposition at local you know town meetings about the zoning the words that people used were in fact words that are coded dog whistly type words to talk about race. So that was the key challenge was how to tell that story. And especially by the time we got to trial in 2013, the events that we were centered around, had all happened in 2004. So by the time we got to trial nine years later, you know, to really be able to convince the judge that this is the story, this is what happened. um, This is what was really going on. I think that was that was our key challenge. And as Stan said, to be able to do that through town officials themselves by having them tell the story and making it still obvious, no matter how defensive they were being that this is what was going on.
2: It seems like um, in this case, you, you did have one, not so much a smoking gun, but Stan mentioned earlier that you had the state, you know, a consultant's assessment that putting um, multifamily housing in this particular spot wouldn't be a problem with traffic, wouldn't be a problem with uh, kind of school capacity and all these things. So you you had a document, I guess, in some ways that was a very visible kind of city-sponsored rebuttal to some of the things that the city was now saying or the city officials were now saying.
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. And when you combine it with some of the resident statements about how this would change the character of the neighborhood, that was what uh, led us to make the case. And I'll say that this was this case, as you know, went up all the way up to the Second Circuit. And the Second Circuit adopted that kind of dog whistle analysis in finding intentional discrimination. And the circuit had never uh, decided a case like that before.
2: So Hava, you mentioned that the things really got underway all the way back to two thousand four. Case was filed. It went to trial in twenty thirteen. Why? Why did everything take so long?
3: There's, I mean, I think there's a lot of factors. You know, some of which go go toward just the the general nature of contentious litigation. When you're just you're fighting about documents and you've got a recalcitrant government and things like that. So some of that was going on. I will say, though, that some of the the factors that led to the length of the case had a lot to do with the political context in which the case was tried. Nobody wanted to, to take on this town, right? A lot of the law firms are located in this town. People live there. Powerful political people come from there. Over the course of this case, we've had the judges assigned to the case recuse themselves because of some connections to this town. We had put together you a know, very extensive set of facts to do what we call a you know, summary judgment motion to try to ask the judge to make a ruling before trial on the case. And that process took a long time. A lot of facts went into it. And soon after we filed it, the judge recused himself. And we had to go to another judge and kind of start all over again. It was um, actually after so,
4: we argued the case. I argued right. summary of, uh, <laughs> the opposing summary judgment b- before one judge uh, he held on to it for about six months after and then said, I have to recuse myself. We've had four judges in this case and two recusals. Wow. So that obviously made it take much longer than it should have.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and another I guess another factor, too, is, um, you know, this isn't this is this is kind of par for the course in housing discrimination cases, partially because I think the the politics of it right you're accusing an entire town and the people in it of discrimination you're you're going up against you know attitudes that are entrenched in some ways in people's identity of you know who they are we live in this town this is our life we we don't discriminate we're not racist and so the the tenacity with which you know, a town might fight allegations like this, I think, tends to, to draw things out as well.
2: Right. And if they capitulate and settle, then it's a, it's a concession or it's some kind of a, a impingement on that identity that they have built up around themselves.
4: There's nothing more difficult than litigating against local governments, particularly uh, fair housing cases. They don't make decisions as perhaps a business would, first of all. And second of all, I'll say this that when we think about housing and uh, housing discrimination, we very typically think about real estate agents, and that often is the case. But local governments are a major problem in terms of breaking the patterns of of, uh, segregation in the United States. They're political, they worry about the uh, constituents, and they dig in their heels. So that is a problem that can't be ignored.
2: Yeah, you have to meet tenacity with tenacity. It sounds like. So, um, Stan, you mentioned, and Javi, you mentioned as well, the Second Circuit appeal. But you, you, before we get there, I, I want to ask a little bit about the trial. Um, was this a was this a jury trial? Was it a bench trial? How did it take shape, and how did it come out?
4: It was a bench trial. Before a judge who didn't say very much in terms of what his feelings were uh, during the course of the trial, but came up with a very good decision, finding both uh, uh, intentional discrimination and disparate impact discrimination, which the village of Garden City then appealed.
2: So the judge found both, to to Hava's points that she was making earlier, both intentional and disparate impact uh, discrimination were the findings. Interesting.
4: little bit of a complicated story when it went to the second circuit the the second circuit affirmed with some great findings as far as our intentional discrimination uh, claim but then said well hud has come up with new rules for disparate impact the judge didn't follow those rules which he really couldn't have because the rules they were new uh, came after the decision so it remanded the case back to the judge using those new rules and the judge reaffirmed his decision, and at that point, Garden City didn't appeal any further.
2: So at, at that point, so this case has a long run-up to trial. There's a trial, the, the decision, the appeal, the remand, the subsequent decision. What, what is happening to the land at the center of this lawsuit during this entire decade-plus period?
4: Well, that's a big problem. Um, well, um, and again,
2: politics,
4: all right? So when we're trying this case, the county executive says, I know how we'll get out of this case. I'll decide not to sell the land, and I'll develop it as a courthouse instead. So that's what they did. And by the time that this case ran through all these proceedings, the county was not selling it anymore. It was using the land for this courthouse, which they're still construction, constructing, as I recall. And that was a, a real problem.
2: So where do things stand now, Stan?
4: Well, we actually entered into a settlement agreement with the, uh, the new administration. And that agreement was interesting because it, it requires the new Nassau County uh, administration to take certain steps to try to break through this uh, pattern of housing for minorities goes into minority areas. And they actually, and this is also kind of interesting, we didn't have a damage claim in this case. And there were a number of reasons for that. But in any event, one of the things that we ended up doing was collecting $5 million to go to our client to be used to develop affordable housing in the the county. And after about a year or so since this settlement was entered entered into, our client has found land in what Harvey described as a high opportunity area of the county. And they're actually starting the process of developing that particular land so that we'll have affordable housing. So it's a real breakthrough, but beyond that, the county is taking other steps to increase the affordable housing in high opportunity areas of the county. And it's, it's difficult because the county doesn't do its own zoning. The, the zoning is done by the local towns and villages, but they, they've made a commitment and um, they're working towards it. And we're soon at the point where they're gonna be giving us a report on the steps they've been taking, what they're gonna be doing, and we'll
2: we'll see how that all goes. Each of you mentioned at different points in our conversation, Hava and Stan, um, the, the implications beyond this case, the fact that some of the same reactions and language is, is being used today. What do you see as the as the implications or the the impacts of this case of the second Circuit's decision on similar litigation now and going forward?
4: Well, First of all, as, uh, as I mentioned, the fact that the, uh, the Second Circuit recognized that you can prove an intentional discrimination case with so-called code words or dog whistles is very important. Because people are smart enough these days not to use the more obvious language. And so you have to make your case very often based on these code words. So that was, that's very important. And the fact that we're able to make changes is important. Um, and one that hopefully other towns and cities that are looking at this issue will be uh, a little bit more aware of the risks they take by taking these kind of policies. Garden City, by the way, uh, ended up with a huge uh, attorney's fee award uh, that they had to pay uh, in addition to their own fees. Nassau County, as I mentioned, paid $5 million to our client, so there's an economic cost that we are hopeful that um, other towns and municipalities will be aware of. Uh, There's still a a long way to go in addressing this. Segregation is a big, big problem in the United States, and the impact in terms of the kids who go to live in segregated communities end up in segregated uh, schools, which are often not performing very well, and there just needs to be more done. And we're working on that.
2: Great. Hava, any thoughts on that?
3: Housing segregation really is at the root of so many of the evils of racism that we are now talking about now in a, in a renewed national conversation, you know, after the deaths of George Floyd and Ahmad Arbery and too many others. And it's so clear that, you know, so many other evils of racism can be traced back to housing segregation, which was caused by our government, and unfortunately is still perpetuated by government policies that can sneak under the radar. In some ways, it's heartening that you know we were able to fight this case as tenaciously as we did, and have a court recognize, um, you know, what's going on, and that you do have to look beneath the surface, so that it can be a warning and an example, and hopefully pave the way um, to have less of this in the future. But the flip side of that is that it, it's a little disheartening to think about on a practical level you know, how small of an impact we've had in that the change takes too long. You know, I think that the decision we got from the court was so significant. But when we look at um, how long it will take for what the court gave us to take effect, you know, for our clients, um, for the members of New York communities for change and for many management who develops housing, that it's taken this long for them to get the victory and to be able to just open the door to make changes, I think really, really illustrates, you know, what a pervasive and damaging really to the core of this nation, you know, housing segregation is um, and how much more work needs to be done fight it
4: and this is where a firm like Hogan that has the depth and the resources to handle a case like this is very important and where we can really do something to help and um, so I'm proud of what we did in this case we have the skills we have the depth we have the resources and uh, you know we did a great job
2: that's wonderful thank you both In our next episode of this podcast series, we'll dive into a landmark case that challenged institutional racism. You'll hear about pervasive discrimination against black secret service officers and what happened when Hogan Lovells got involved. We hope you'll join us for a discussion with the attorneys who fought this important legal battle. Talk to you next time.